Well, that was a blessing to sing with you guys. I love that. Uh, what a rich blessing to hear of God's work um, and, and uh, uh, witness baptism. And that was just phenomenal. And now it's a privilege to preach the word. Um, so thanks for your prayers. I've had a lot of friends and people reached out and be like, man, we're praying for you and excited for hearing God's word this Sunday. And I'm excited too. So thanks for being here and thanks for listening. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have one on your phone, we actually have Bibles in the, in the little racks in the chairs in front of you. So if you look under one of those chairs, there should be a Bible there. And if there is, you can go to page 809 and that's where we'll be today. We're in Luke chapter 5 in verse 33, all the way to Luke chapter 6 verse 11. So it's a little bit longer of a section and we're actually going to be looking at a couple different stories in the ministry of Jesus' life. But to get us started, I'm going to read that here in just a second, but, get, but to get us started, let's, let's kind of get the context of what's happening. If we look at Luke chapter 5 all the way through Luke chapter 6, verse 16, we find eight different events in Jesus' life. We've already looked at some of them last week. We're going to look at a couple more this week. And so before we do that, let me just kind of give you a fly-by view of what those eight events are. At the beginning, we see a miracle, and Jesus calls Peter, James, and John as disciples. How many of you remember that from last week? Okay, good, good. Here we go. We'll keep, we'll keep seeing. Then in chapter 5, we see uh, there are two stories of Jesus healing the sick. There were two sick people. Do you remember what they were? One sick person had leprosy, and the other one, they ripped open the roof, and they let him down because he was paralyzed. You remember that? Okay, and we were seeing Jesus' deity on display. Then we come, after that, to a story about Jesus calling a man uh, named Levi. We normally call Levi by a different name. Who, know, who remembers Levi's name that we normally call him by? Okay, Matthew, good, you're with me, good, Matthew. And he calls him to be a, to be a disciple, but then what happens after Jesus calls Levi is there, there's a celebration with a lot of well-known sinners present, and the religious people are like, I'm not sure about this. Why are you eating and drinking with sinners? They don't like that celebration. And then the next few stories are where we find ourselves today. We're in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And these stories are this. Today we're going to have a question about fasting. We're going to have questions about the Sabbath and accusations towards Jesus on the Sabbath. We're going to find there's a healing. And in the end, next week, we're going to see kind of a close on this section with calling of disciples, and we'll see the calling of the twelve. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the shape of the passage where we're at. Let's look together. We'll, I'll read Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through Luke 6, 11, and typically here's how we do it. We have this tradition. I'll read, and then when I get done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, because we're just grateful that God has given us his word. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Here we go, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. It's not stated as a question, but that's a pretty big question. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom, we would call it the groom, while the groom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, 
The new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no, wine, no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all, at them all, he said to him, the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the Pharisees and scribes, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of you already know my wife, Christy. Uh, if you don't, I'd encourage you to meet her. She's awesome. I like her. Um, those of you who don't know her, though, let me just tell you one of the amazing things about her. She has a lot, but one amazing thing is she's a teacher. She's probably embarrassed right now. <laughs> she's a teacher. She's taught in a lot of different settings. She's taught in public school. She's taught in private school. But most often, and for most of that time, she has taught uh, early elementary education, those, those young grades that take lots of patience and um, a sweetheart, and so that's why she does it. Um, how many other teachers do we have here today? Elementary, middle school, high school, college, anything? Okay. Teachers, you got a, you got a special heart, and that's awesome. When, when you're trying to teach people, typically you have some outcomes, some things you're trying to do. And I was thinking about that, especially with my wife. She likes to teach kids, these younger children, how to read. She really loves it when they learn how to read. And as she's teaching them these things, she's trying to help them understand the basic information about a book. How many of you can remember like, like a book that you loved as a child? Like you're like, oh yeah, I really, uh, there are some books, I loved them so much. Maybe you're getting a little older and you can't remember a book from your childhood, but you remember a book from your own kid's favorite book collection. And you probably have read it a hundred times, maybe you have it memorized. You know, remember that book. Think about it. Most often what we're, what we're trying to do in, in, in helping kids learn to read is we're trying to help them understand who are the characters, right? What is the setting? What's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? What's going on? They teach the predictable patterns of a story. And that's awesome. That's really good. As we move on, though, 
from, from reading those, those elementary books or just that level of understanding, we want to understand bigger things and more complex things, like what's the cause, what's the effect, right? Or understand those pieces. What are the varying points of view? What are motives involved here? It'd be possible today that as, as we've even read the Bible, I think it'd be possible for us to understand it kind of on that early elementary education level. We, we kind of get some facts. We bounce along the top of the story, understanding some pieces, but we don't ask questions that are below the surface. We never take it deeper so that it actually impacts our lives. It's easy to observe, but not apply. There are some things in this passage, though, that God has recorded so that we could actually learn today. And the good news is, while my wife is an excellent teacher, Jesus is the master teacher. And so the things that we need to learn today, he is adept and skillful at teaching us. Like, think about Jesus. Even as you look at his interaction with these Pharisees and scribes and these people in the story, he is a skillful, skillful teacher. Every aspect of his interaction is skillful and instructive. Look at how he responds. Skill. Look at the parables he uses, not just in this passage, but in his earthly ministry as a whole. He is skillfully teaching. He's not always just teaching what we see, but he's, he's actually exposing hearts of people as they listen. His explanation is masterful. Even his timing here is intentional to teach and to expose. In our passage, we know that Jesus is teaching the religious leaders of the day. He's, he's obviously teaching his disciples that surround him. There are bystanders all around. They're being taught as well. But by the very fact that we're reading the word today, God wants to teach us. So let's hear. Let's listen. Let's learn from Jesus. What should these stories teach us? It should teach us about hearts. It should teach us about what really are the desires and the motivations behind the questions that are posed and the actions of these lives. There's something much more significant and deep that's going on. We need to ask questions that expose the hearts of all the people involved. We need to understand the heart of the Pharisees. We need to understand the heart of Jesus. We need to understand our own hearts as well. We do well to ask the question, why do you do what you do? That's kind of one of the questions that was asked in our passage, but we should ask that question today. So we're going to spend time looking at three different sets of hearts, and we're going to seek to understand the heart of the matter here in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. Let's look at the first heart, okay? Let's look at the first heart. The first one that we're going to look at is this. Pharisee heart, the Pharisee's heart. And what we find out about the Pharisees is Pharisees have complicating and corrupting hearts. The first heart we're going to look at is the Pharisee heart. Pharisees have complicating and corrupting hearts. We really see two major collision points in our passage today. It's talking about fasting and it's talking about Sabbaths. We might, we might call it this we might say we're worried about holy, uh, holy habits like fasting and 
holy days like Sabbaths. And the Pharisees were really, really interested in their holy habits and their holy days. I think we can see as we look at the passage, they really like to complicate and corrupt these things. What do I mean? Well, if we're going to understand how the Pharisees complicate, let's start with fasting. If we're going to understand how they complicate fasting, it'd be helpful to understand what did God command originally with fasting, right? Let's understand what God said. Then let's see how the Pharisees' heart actually did more to what God commanded. And if I'm saying that they complicated and corrupted, let's end up by saying, wait, how has a sinful heart corrupted what God intended? So that's our path. We're going to do that with fasting. We're going to do that with Sabbath. First of all, with fasting. If you went to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 through 31, we'd find the, the single Old Testament command towards fasting. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find lots of instances of fasting. You'll find a lot of people who did fast. But this is where Jesus, or this is where God showed his plan for fasting. It had a purpose. God wanted his people to have a couple things. I'd say it's a dissatisfaction with their current broken condition. Once a year, the Israelites were supposed to, on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, one of their most holy holidays, they were supposed to show a dissatisfaction with their current broken condition. They were to actually mourn or grieve over sin. And the Day of Atonement was a day where they were looking forward with anticipation to a promised Messiah. And in connection with all of that, they needed to fast and pray. Fasting was connected to this special day. And it only happened once a year. But it's easy to complicate that command. And gradually, maybe even almost imperceptibly, move the line that God drew. God said, I want you to fast on the Day of Atonement. What started out as mourning over sin and anticipating God's promised Messiah, I think quickly moved into something else, trying to get God's attention. And then, think about it. The Israelites faced exile from their homeland. They had disobeyed God. They had rejected him. They were now exiled. And finally they returned. And once they returned, they don't want to be exiles anymore. They actually developed a very rigid intensity to keeping their interpretation of God's laws. You see, something has happened because they've experienced the pain of exile and the results of sin, now they're like, okay, we are gonna fix this. And they took their interpretation and they were like, we will intensely follow that. They'd lost their land, they lost their temple, they lost their prestige as a nation. So in order to preserve their restored nation, they developed a tight explanation and a very tight expectation of how to live out their interpretation of the law. They have complicated it. Fasting moved from one time a year to two times a week. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> uh, Mondays and Thursdays, the Pharisees would fast, and many others would as well. 
Now let me ask you this question. Was fasting twice a week a sin? No, not at all. But it's not what God commanded. And where their hearts went was sinful. You see, the Pharisees complicated and corrupted. What we find out in this own passage, what we find out in Luke chapter 18, where we have the example of of the, the sinner and the Pharisee praying, in that example, we see a Pharisee who's like, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I give and I fast twice a week. Do you see what's happened? The Pharisee heart has complicated and corrupted what God gave them. And now no longer is it mourning over sin and anticipating a Messiah. Now it has moved from even trying to get God to listen, and now it is trying to get the attention of everyone around them and to look really, really spiritual. The Pharisee heart is corrupted in that they want others to see their elevated spiritual status. In essence, what they're doing is they're saying, look at how spiritual I am. Look at me. And that shows a corrupted heart. They wanted people's attention and respect. So I think in the first example, we see that Pharisees have complicating and corrupting hearts, and that's on display with fasting, but it's also on display with Sabbaths. Let's talk about that for a second, okay? Let's, let's understand these two pieces, fasting and Sabbaths. The original command uh, about Sabbaths and keeping it holy can be found primarily in two spots. One is with the giving of the Ten Commandments, that's in Exodus 20, and then when Moses uh, uh, re-communicates um, the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we find the command again about Sabbath. In these passages, we find two reasons for God's people to revere the Sabbath. And if you look at them, it would be these. First, revere the Sabbath to reflect God's own pattern of work and rest. Revere the Sabbath. You're God's special people, so you reflect God. He worked, and then he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He was establishing a pattern. And God wanted his people to reflect that pattern at creation of work and rest. So that was the one reason. And then the second was to remember your salvation. That's why God gave the Sabbath rest to the Israelites. That's clearly seen in Deuteronomy 5, even verse 15. Here's the beauty of it. Deuteronomy 5.15 specifically connects Sabbath rest as a way for the Israelites to both celebrate and also to reprogram after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God is saying, you don't need to slave away every single day under your oppressive slave master. I have freed you, so feel free to rest. And it was a gift from God to his people. But do you know what happens with good gifts? Sinful hearts complicate it and corrupt it. How did they complicate the Sabbath? Well, they made it as a way for them to earn God's approval. And they complicated the Sabbath by actually creating 39 different major categories of work that would be violation 
of Sabbath rest. So if we're supposed to remember the Sabbath, let's give a list of 39 things that you have to remember also so you can really rest well. That sounds restful, right? Here's 39 things. But it wasn't just 39. That was just the big categories. They had sub-items underneath that. I mean, they, like, they loved these. They were like getting things done on the Sabbath, like these nested lists of what not to do and then what not to not to do underneath the Sabbath. And they were complicating it. They complicated the Sabbath with all these categories. I have a few just, just to share. They were so concerned about not working, they would ask questions like, well, if we shouldn't work, is tying a knot work? Maybe. Well, then what type of knot should we tie? And the answer was, only tie a knot that could be untied with one hand. If you tie a knot that has to be untied with two hands, two hands work, one hand, okay. So make sure all the knots that you tie, it's not even about the untying, the knots you tie should not be two-handed knots because now you're causing someone work because of what you did on the Sabbath. See how complicated this gets? That was just one. Uh, what about carrying things? You ever think through, wow, that's heavy weight? What would be so heavy of a weight on a Sabbath that you would say, oh, now I am carrying a burden? Do you know what they said? Here it is. The weight of a dried fig. I don't know how much a dried fig weighs, but it's not a lot. But if you carried anything more than the weight of a dried fig, you know what you're doing? You are working. No, no, not on the Sabbath. So sometimes they would actually cut things up into half dried fig weights. And they could carry one half, and then another half, and then another half, and technically you carried a lot, but you weren't working. See how complicated this gets? You could dip a radish in salt, but don't leave it there too long, because if you leave it there too long, that's actually pickling, <laughs> and that's work. So it's like you can have salt and vinegar chips, <laughs> but you can't make pickles, okay? They had other things like this. You couldn't climb a tree, ride, swim, clap your hands, strike your side, or dance. Because that was breaking of the Sabbath law. And after we look at all that, can't you see that, wow, there was some great complication of what God intended on the Sabbath. But that's the nature of Pharisee hearts. Pharisee hearts love to complicate. And they love to corrupt. Did you catch in the passage how these Pharisee hearts corrupted the Sabbath? They accused Jesus and his disciples of working because they walked by some grain and picked it. Oh, that's, that's harvesting. They put it in their hands and they rubbed it together. Oh, that's threshing. They ate it. That's baking. What? They, they now are viewing Jesus and his disciples as sinners just because they're hungry and they ate some heads of grain. But it doesn't stop there. Sinful Pharisee hearts see the hungry and say, you can starve today. Tomorrow is a day for eating. Sinful Pharisee hearts see the hurting and see the sick and say, you need to wait to get healed. 
Sinful Pharisee hearts see the broken and needy just as pawns for religious argumentation and attacks on Jesus. Do you see what had happened to their hearts? They looked out at this man with a withered hand, and all they saw was an opportunity to attack Jesus because Pharisees have complicating and corrupting hearts. The Pharisees scrutinized fasting, harvesting and working, and they missed it entirely. They thought God was going to accept them based on their perfect keeping of their own commands. What started generations before as as a desire to follow God's commands became an oppressive and obsessive act of self-produced self-righteousness. One author wrote this. The challenge of the Pharisees is revealing. They accused Jesus of doing what was unlawful. They're saying you are contrary to God's law to Moses. But there was no scriptural law against what Jesus and his disciples did. The Pharisees could no longer distinguish between their man-made interpretations and traditions and the God-given law. It's not just Pharisees of Jesus' day that have this problem, though. All humans have the ability to legislate obedience to God, to twist it into becoming a self-serving way, and then to stand back and feel really, really superior to other people. We Me, us, we too have Pharisee hearts. We have legalistic lives. How do you gravitate towards judgmentalism, superiority, and sin? Maybe we can examine a couple different areas of life. I thought of a few. How do you gravitate towards judgmentalism, superiority, and sin? Maybe it's with religion. Are you like the Pharisees, fixated on external expectations of your own creation. You're judgmental, have superiority, and you sinned. Maybe it's arbitrary standards that are most applicable to to your immediate context or your own preferences. And that's because we have Pharisee hearts. Maybe it's with your work. Maybe that's where you're judgmental and you're superior and you're sinful. Has your heart hijacked a good work ethic? Maybe, maybe in business or maybe in education, maybe in degree pursuits. It's hijacked something really good, but it's made you into a workaholic, an educationaholic, a perfectionaholic. I was thinking all the perfectionists out there, just got a little upset because they're like, perfectionaholic isn't a word. (laughs) Case in point, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) But do we do the same thing where even in our work or in our school, we are judgmental, superior, and sinful over other people around us? Maybe it's with parenting. 
I did a Google search just to, because our youngest is nine. I feel like I'm a little bit out of the, out of the space, but I still have like twitches for some of the, the parenting debates that are out there, you know? Because isn't it as parents we can actually be judgmental, have superiority, and be sinful as we view other parents? Think about the different ways that we view birth, home birth, hospital birth. What about schooling choices? What about those who are like, oh, I'm really, a, I'm really a sports family. No, I'm really a STEM family, you know? Science, technology, engineering, math. Like, what are you? What about screen time versus book time? What about how to correct a child? What about how to feed a child, right? Think of all the ways where we can feel judgmental, superior, and sinful. The list could go on and on. What about your causes? Is it possible that your organizations, your charities, or your burden, or your burdens have moved from, man, this is really something I should do, to something that every other person must think the exact same way and feel the exact same way as I do about this thing. And now we are judgmental, superior, and sinful even with our good causes. Why? Because we too have Pharisee hearts and legalistic lives. We aren't distant from the Pharisees in this passage. We are just like them. And Jesus, in his skillful teaching, wants to expose that and expose the Pharisee heart inside of all of us. We have the ability to arbitrarily move the line to where we feel it should really go. And then we judge ourselves and we judge everyone else based on the line that we just moved. We too have those hearts. And then sometimes we can get so upset and so enraged. I was thinking, I was thinking about the ability where like someone crosses the line. And then with wide eyes and bulging neck veins, we can scream, you crossed the line. But what line did they really cross? Our line or God's line? The right line. Why do I bring this up? Could it be that God wanted you to encounter this passage about dogmatic Pharisees and judgmental scribes so you would see yourself? Is God calling you to confess a self-righteous heart, a judgmental stance towards others, or an attitude of perfectionism? Can you look at the most sincere followers of Christ, still find fault in them, and mutter belittling things about them under your breath, even here in this building, when we're trying to worship God? Does your Pharisee heart sow seeds of discord in our church, in your community group, or even in your family? God wants to expose that. God wants you to confess that. And God wants to save you from that. So when we look at the Pharisees, we see that they, as well as us, have complicating and corrupting hearts. But when we look at Jesus, we see something else. So let's take a look at Jesus' heart. When we look at Jesus, we see something entirely different. In Jesus, we find that he has a compassionate heart. Did you see it? Did you see Jesus' compassionate heart in this passage? It's totally different. 
It's characterized by compassion for the hurting and the needy. We see it in two ways. The first one is this. Jesus' compassionate heart seeks to remind. He seeks to remind these people. He's going to remind them of a bunch of things. And here in this, I'm just going to kind of go through some of the different high points where there was tension and struggle, and Jesus wants to remind them of his father's teaching. He's saying, you are so far from what my father told you. Your broken lives have twisted everything. I want to bring you back to what God really said. I'm going to remind you. Jesus wanted to remind them of the real reason to fast. It's not so people can look at your spirituality. It's to show a dissatisfaction of sin, to grieve over sin, and to anticipate God's forgiveness of that sin. I want to remind you, God said he would hear you and he would respond. I want to remind you that now is not the time to fast, but rather a time to celebrate because God has done exactly what he said he would do. The one that you fasted for is in front of you. Jesus compassionately wants to remind about the groom. Now to our ears, when, we, when Jesus gives the illustration of the bridegroom, we kind of understand, but we don't fully understand. Jesus is reminding the Israelites about the groom because there were promises in the Old Testament about God loving his people like a groom adores his bride on the wedding day. We find that in Isaiah, we find it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. God was going to show up with great love for his people. Your anticipation, Israelites, your anticipation, Pharisees, of God's acceptance and God's approval, it's going to be over. God will display love and have compassion on you, Isaiah 54. I want to remind you, the groom is coming, and here he is. That's what Jesus is saying. You're hoping for God to show up. I am here. Jesus' compassionate heart wants to remind the Jews that they have tried for thousands of years to follow God. And if you know the Old Testament, you know it's through ups and downs. It's through success and failure. It's through real national victory and real national shame. And if anything, all their religious efforts and attempts weren't working, they were actually counterproductive to what God really wanted to happen. You don't need to make some adjustments. You need something entirely new. That's what Jesus is reminding them. Your efforts have taken you Nowhere closer to God, but actually far from God and far from man. You need something new. What you're doing is completely incompatible. It's as incompatible as ripping out a piece of a new shirt to put it onto an old, worn-out shirt that just needs to be thrown away. It's as incompatible as, as taking new wine and pouring it into old wineskins just to have it spill all over the ground. Jesus is saying, I am what is new. And you need me. Stop insisting on your broken preferences for what is familiar and comfortable. What you need is me. And Jesus is trying to remind them of what God had said. Jesus is trying to remind them that the Sabbath is a gift. 
He points to David and the priest named Ahimelech. When David was running for his life, he was starving. And he had no right to take the bread that was a special gift from God to the priests. But if the priest wanted to give that as a gift, the gift from God to David, he could do that. It was his gift to give. And what that really showed was mercy. And that's what that story should be about. Jesus is trying to remind these Pharisees that the Sabbath is a gift and he lo- God loves to show mercy. Isn't that the heart of God? A merciful God to starving humanity? Jesus wanted to remind these people about Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He says the words, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And in Daniel 7, Jesus is trying to remind them that this son of man is one who can stand before Almighty God because he is Almighty God. This son of man in Daniel 7 has an everlasting dominion over everything because he is everlasting. He is God. And by saying, the son of man is Lord of the harvest, he's saying, I am that son of man, promised in Daniel and present in front of you right now. Jesus is trying to remind, kindly, compassionately remind these people of God's word. Jesus wants to remind them that the Sabbath is for doing good. Did you catch that final story where the man with the withered hand is asked to stretch out his hand? But before that, Jesus looks around at all of them and asks, is the Sabbath for doing good or for doing evil? Jesus wanted to remind them of the Sabbath. He wanted to remind them of God's heart. Jesus would be saying something like this, don't mistakenly think that good can just be delayed. I want you to remember Proverbs chapter three. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due and when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I'll give it to you. When you have it with you. Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Jesus is saying, if I don't do good right now when it's in my power to do heal, then it is evil. And what is the Sabbath all about? Doing good or doing evil? The last thing Jesus wants to remind these people about is that you're looking for the Messiah. Every hope and every dream is in that one person. I am he. I am here. That's what Jesus is saying. One commentary wrote this. I thought it was helpful, so I'll read it. It's a little bit longer, so stick with me. He wrote this. Jesus, as the Messiah, came to establish a completely new paradigm, a new world order instituted and implemented by the creator in human form. The religious elite should not have been taken unawares. Prophets had long foretold the coming of a new way that would replace the old, and that this new way would involve God himself pursuing the unrighteous to bring them to repentance and to restore their broken fellowship. Instead of summoning the righteous to the temple, the Messiah would seek them where they are and save them as they are. Unfortunately, this new way didn't sit well with the old guard 
But if they thought Jesus partying with sinners rubbed them the wrong way, they hadn't seen anything yet. I thought that was helpful. The Pharisees completely missed it. And so Jesus wanted to remind them. And we see Jesus' heart on display. It's a compassionate heart that wants to remind. But don't miss the other side. Jesus had a compassionate heart that wants to remind, but Jesus also has a compassionate heart that wants to redeem. Don't miss it in the passage. You see, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a unique people to display God's glory. But without having new hearts or new desires, all of their discipline only resulted in a self-righteousness that made them farther from God and farther from men. They needed something more than a reminder. They needed a redeemer. And in each of these stories, we actually see that redeemer on display. Let me just point it out real fast. I love this. In the first story about fasting, do you know what fasting was all about? It was actually supposed to be connected to the Day of Atonement. That day when sins were actually paid for and they were hoping that maybe one day it wouldn't be year over year over year over year hoping and praying and pleading that sin would be forgiven. And their answer is Jesus. Jesus' heart as Redeemer says, I am here. I am forgiveness walking right down the street. Jesus wanted to redeem them. You cried out for God's attention and God's forgiveness. I'm standing right here. I'm in front of you. In our second story, we talk about Sabbath rest. Wanting so much to celebrate freedom from slavery and resting. And what they didn't realize is the real rest was right there. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he perfectly paid for sin's slavery at the cross. And then in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we find that Jesus is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus says, let me redeem you. I am the real rest you are looking for. I want to redeem you. And in the final story of the man with the withered hand, we see God's redemption put on full display. You see, as Jesus taught in the synagogue, people looked around and they saw a man with what was described as a withered hand. It's a, it's a, it's a term in Greek that actually pictured maybe a, maybe a dried up plant or a crinkly old leaf in winter. Useless. It was his right hand. Most people were predominantly right-handed. So he had no way to care for himself, no way to provide for himself. A shriveled right hand. And the predominant theological view at that day was that something of that catastrophic nature, some, some say maybe he was a carpenter actually, and had a work injury. It's showing God's judgment towards his sin. What does Jesus do? The Pharisees, all they can do is stare at the man and wonder what's going to happen. But Jesus doesn't do that. He has eternal compassion and he says, come to me. Stand right here. And then he heals him. But I want us to see the connection between the healing of Jesus and the anger of the Pharisees. Because Jesus heals and instantly experiences the wrath of the Pharisees. Jesus made himself a target 
and began the unstoppable march to the cross. Because he wanted to be associated with sinners and heal them, he explicitly displays his compassion and his redeeming heart. He says, I will heal you even though it will kill me in the process. That's been Jesus' plan all along. It's not just for people who have withered right hands. Jesus wants to show compassion and Jesus wants to redeem. He looks across all time, he looks across all nations, and he says, I will take your sin sickness on myself. I'm the great healer and I want to heal you even though it will kill me in the process. Do you know what I find most sad about this entire passage? In a debate about fasting and Sabbath, everything that the Pharisees wanted and were looking for, the Messiah and God's rest, it's standing right there in front of them and they completely miss it. They miss him. The fulfillment of everything is there. I was thinking of an illustration. I've got three boys and a lot of times our boys can actually have, you know, a lot, lot more when they were younger on it. They would have nightmares and they'd wake up crying and frightened. And I kind of imagine this like a, a young child in bed, half awake, frightened, scared, crying out, Dad, Dad, help me. But what they don't realize is Dad's already there. Dad's right next to him. He heard their cry. He came to their rescue. He loves them. But in the middle of their fear and being half asleep, they missed that their dad is near. And I think the same thing happened here. Their Pharisee hearts have created all these other things, and they miss that the answer to their prayer was present. God isn't present to redeem because of Israelites' perfect law-keeping. God isn't present to save you because of your perfection. God saves because he always keeps his promises. God saves because he will ultimately rescue his people. So in this story, we see Jesus' compassionate heart as he seeks to remind and redeem. Let's look at one final heart. So one final heart. Which one? It's ours. Where's your heart? Luke was written not so you can observe the story, but respond to the questions. This story is designed to expose our hearts and call us to respond. So how will you respond? Can I give you two options? We find them actually in our text. They're actually the bookends to our passage. We find two options for responding to Jesus. Let's start on the one hand. It's Luke chapter 6, verse 11. The Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The reality is that is one response to Jesus. These people have completely lost it. Another way to say this would be they are out of their minds with rage. They weren't simply talking about how they were going to talk to Jesus later on. They weren't talking about some sort of uh, article they're going to write about him. No, they're, they're talking about how they're going to destroy him. Matthew and Mark, the other two gospels that have this account, make it very clear they're talking about how will we destroy him. The plot to kill Jesus began in earnest. And that has always been a way to respond to Jesus 
and his message, a rage-filled desire to destroy. But there's another response. And we find that actually in Luke chapter 5, our passage from last week, verse 27 through 32. There's a well-known sinner named Levi. We talked about him, or Matthew. What happened with him? He repented of his sin, he trusted in Jesus, and he left everything to follow Jesus. And what is the response? A celebration, rejoicing, excitement, and a party. So where's your heart? As you hear about your Pharisee heart being exposed, are you more ready to be livid with anger or confess and rejoice in grace? Either we can have our sins forgiven and celebrate God's grace, or we can be livid that we have been exposed and opposed and wanting to destroy. God doesn't want us to have Pharisee hearts or legalistic lives. He wants to save and redeem. With Israel, he wanted to redeem them from Egypt and give them a new land. For us, he wants to redeem us from sin and give us a new heart. And God says, I'm going to put a new heart in you. But Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 10 that those who are convicted of their sin need to confess with their mouth and believe God at his word. So we must have confessing and believing hearts. And for those people, God will do a miracle. He will forgive sin and he will put a new heart within them. So how will you respond to God's word today?